My name is Chase, and I'm the discipleship pastor uh, here at Ignite. I want to say welcome. Thank you for joining us on this Memorial Day weekend. How many of you know that we're in a series going through the book of Habakkuk? Come on, this book's so fun. This book's so fun. Three chapters, it's a little book about a big God. In your Bible, it's probably two, three pages at most. And it's one of those books that often gets overlooked, right? Kind of the the middle child of the Bible, if you would. But let me tell you something. It is a powerful, powerful book. Like all of God's word, Habakkuk has a chapter uh, in God's word, in the library of God's word that points us to God's greatness and God's goodness. And by reading Habakkuk, by studying Habakkuk, as we do with all of God's word, we get to know a little bit more about our maker, our creator, uh, the God who is great and the God who is good. Last week, we covered a lot of scripture. We were in all of chapter one of the little book of Habakkuk. And you probably remember, uh, if you were here, what was going on. Uh, Habakkuk looked out into the world, and like many of us, he said, God, I don't like what's going on. How many of you can relate to Habakkuk? We look out, and we say, man, there's a lot of terrible things going on in the world. And Habakkuk asked a question that you and I have probably found ourselves asking before. In fact, even if you're not religious, you've probably asked this question. Habakkuk asks it too. It is this, God, where are you? God, where are you? Because we look out into the world and what do we see? Oppression, injustice, poverty, disease, divorce, broken relationships, financial struggle, illness, suffering, pain. And we learned with Habakkuk that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to look out and then look up, if you will, and go to God and say, God, I'm frustrated with what's going on. Where are you? And so Habakkuk pours his heart out to God in prayer. Habakkuk reads like a prayer journal, right? It's like a 15-minute read, and it's like a prayer journal for God's people, And God responded, he said, Habakkuk, I am here. If you remember, chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, Habakkuk Habakkuk cries out to God, and God says, don't worry. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that wicked, hasty nation, to come in and bring judgment on you and, and my people. And how many of you know Habakkuk was like, what on earth is going on? Your solution, God, is worse than the problem. So he goes to God again and says, I don't like that solution. And we left off last week in the last verse of chapter one, and Habakkuk was at rock bottom, right? He asked God, are you going to keep allowing evil? Are you going to continue to allow the wicked nation of Babylon to collect all these peoples for themselves and mercilessly kill nations forever? He ended at rock bottom. And as we process God's work in the world, as we process God's will for his people and his creation, a helpful illustration, helpful visual image is a loom. It's a a, a loom. When you're weaving something together, you use a loom to hold together the thread so you can make a beautiful tapestry. And in chapter one, last week, we talked about how God's plan is like a loom God's people live beneath 
the loom. God is the artist at work above the loom. And if you've ever seen a woven loom or a tapestry, if you flip the loom over to the other side, it is a mess of fabric. It's a mess of threads. But if you look on top, the picture that's created, if it's a skilled artist, will be a beautiful tapestry and a beautiful image. We live beneath the loom. When we look up at God's plan, it's like chaos. God, what are you doing? I don't understand it. Habakkuk, what was he doing? He was looking at the bottom of the loom and said, God, you're bringing the Babylonians to bring judgment on, on your people. What on earth is going on? They're suffering. This won't help. You're gonna make us suffer even more. But God assures us, look, if you walk with me, you'll learn who I am. I'm great and I'm good. And that means the tapestry that I'm weaving together on this loom, though it looks really ugly from beneath, if you look on top of the loom, you will see my plan, and it is more beautiful, it is great, it is good, it'll bring me glory, it'll bring my people ultimate good. Does that make sense? That's what we unpacked last week. God's plan is like a loom. But let me say this. We can trust and we should trust that God is an artist working together all things for his glory and our good. And eventually the tapestry, the loom, the art that God is creating will come to its glorious end and the tapestry, so to speak, will be completed. But hear me out. That does not get rid of the fact that today you and me are very seriously facing difficult, broken, sinful situations and live in a broken, messed up world. Amen? And I would even say this, that doesn't eradicate or get rid of the fact that you and I are broken, messed up people. Right? So we have to ask ourselves, okay, God, if you're working all these things out, how am I to live today? Because when I go home from church, man, I'm going to be facing difficult financial situations. When I go back to work on Monday, I'm going to be facing a very difficult work environment. When I go back and sit at the supper table tonight with my family, man, our family's getting ready to, to be broken apart. And, and God, I don't know where you are. I know you're working all things for good, but I can't see it right now. How am I supposed to live today? And how many of you know God is not silent when it comes to how his people are to live? God loves his people. He desires relationship with his people. And in Habakkuk chapter 2, we're going to look at five verses today. We're going to slow down quite a bit. And we're going to look at Habakkuk 2, 1 through 5. And in it, God answers the question for Habakkuk, how are we to live while we wait? How are we to live while we wait? as we're waiting for God's plan to be complete, as we're waiting for God to do away with all suffering and evil, one day, that's our hope, that's our trust. How are we to live while we wait? And that's what Habakkuk chapter two explores, and that's where we're gonna be today. If you think about it, before we dive into the scripture, um, we spend a lot of time waiting in life. Right, there's statistics, I don't know them off the top of my head, but you spend like X amount of years or months or something waiting at stoplights, right? Uh, in the grocery store, you just wait in line, line after line. Maybe you're going shopping with a certain individual in your family, a spouse perhaps, and they're just taking their time. And so what do you do? You sit down um, in the mall and you people watch, right? That's what you do. But we spend a lot of time waiting for things, the question we often don't ask, though, is how am I going to spend my time while I wait? We just kind of spend it. Or we just kind of, we kind of we pull out our phone or we people watch 
or we, we sit and wait for the light to turn green. Like, we don't really think about how we spend our time waiting. We just kind of wait, and then when that thing comes, we, we celebrate and we, we do that thing. Um, let me give you maybe a more uh, personal example. Uh, when my wife and I got engaged a few years ago, uh, we had about a year before our wedding. And here's what we didn't do while we waited for the wedding day. We didn't say, good, engaged, woo, awesome, we'll see you at the altar, and we just like cut off communication. Like we don't, we didn't do that, right? For that entire year, what we did was we walked in relationship together. We built trust together. Let me tell you this, you might be able to say amen to this. We spent a lot of time planning the wedding. Oh my gosh, everything needs a color and everything needs a place. Like it's crazy, I won't get into that though, but with that being said, we spent time together. And I can say this confidently. I knew my wife now, Ashton, better the day before we got married than the year before we got married. Why? Because we spent it walking in relationship together. Right? We spent it planning together. We walked together. Relationship. Relationship. As we waited for the day, we walked together. And we'll find out in these few verses in chapter 2 of Habakkuk that God invites his people as they wait for God's plan to be fulfilled to walk with him in relationship. We don't say, God, I know you're gonna work it all out for my good and your glory and I'm just gonna wait until that day comes and I'm gonna do my own thing. We don't do that. That's not the nature of the relationship. Relationship says we're gonna walk hand in hand together. Even when it's difficult, even when it's exciting, when it's good, when it's easy, I'm gonna walk with God. Through valleys and hills, I'm going to walk with God. That's what he calls his people to do as we walk through pain, as we walk through suffering. Does that make sense? We're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 2. If you have a Bible, turn there. It should be on the screen behind me as well. And we're just going to, we're just going to take it verse by verse. Um, we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 2 where we left off last week in verse 17 of chapter 1. Habakkuk ends his, his first prayer journal entry by saying, verse 1, chapter 2, I will take my stand at my watch post. I will station myself on the tower and look out to see what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is a really, really bold thing of Habakkuk to do in light of what we know happened in chapter 1. How many of you know that Habakkuk did not like God's plan and God's purposes? He was really frustrated, really angry with God. He was complaining to God. Nevertheless, he takes a stand. He takes a stand and says, God, even if I don't like your will, even if I don't understand what you're doing, and I don't understand your work, I'm still going to walk in relationship with you. Again, Habakkuk is showing us in verse 1 right away what it looks like to walk in real relationship with God. What it looks like to walk in real relationship with God. I found that there are two ways people can respond to God in suffering. You can walk with God or you can walk away from God. Really, people fall in, in one of the two categories. You turn from God or you walk with God. And even as I say this, people are probably coming to mind. You're like, yeah, that, that family member of mine was walking with God for, for a while, but then a tragedy happened and they got angry at God. 
And instead of continuing to walk with God, that pushed them over the edge, broke the camel's back, and they said, I'm going to turn from God. Maybe, maybe that's you today. Maybe you read Habakkuk 2, verse 1, and you're like, what, what a fool. Why would he continue walking with God? And I want to encourage you to ask yourself this. Just think about it. I'm sure you've processed it. I'm sure the person you're thinking about has, has thought about this a little bit. But I want to encourage you to ask, where else are you going to go? If you're not going to continue walking with God, then where are you going to go? Because we learn, as Habakkuk learned, that God is the great and good God. God is the one that upholds his people when they fall and when they suffer and when they're in pain. God is the one who loves his people in loving relationship, in a good relationship with his people and walks with you in your brokenness and your suffering. When you're frustrated, God is there to uphold you. We also know that God is acquainted with suffering. He's not removed from your suffering. He experienced it in the personal work of Jesus Christ who suffered to the point of death. So I just want to use, use this verse to encourage you. Man, keep walking with God. I'm always encouraged by believers um, more experienced than I, I will say. Uh, they've been walking with God for decades and decades and decades. And they say, yeah, it's been really difficult, but my communion, my fellowship, my trust, my relationship with God though marked by trial and difficulty, has gotten greater and sweeter over the years. Man, can we stand with Habakkuk and say, I don't like what you're doing necessarily. I don't know what you're doing, God, but I trust in your character. That's what Habakkuk's doing. That's what a real relationship is. We walk with God through pain. We walk with God through suffering. Verse two, now the dialogue changes. The rest of chapter two, in fact, this week and into next week, we're gonna see God has the podium. God gets to do the speaking now. And so God responds to Habakkuk and says, uh, Habakkuk says, the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. You remember me talking about uh, this idea that Habakkuk reads like a prayer journal for God's people. If you don't mind, I'm going to throw on my nerd glasses for a second. Here's, here's what Here's what the, the, the Bible really is, and here's what the books of the Bible, uh, uh, how they came into being. So oftentimes we wrestle and we think, I'll call, it, I'll call it golden tablet syndrome. We think that God's word is just like golden tablets fallen from heaven, um, and we just get them and there we go. That, that's not how God's word works. In fact, we see in Habakkuk that God instructs his prophet, his spokesman, to write down the words that he's going to speak to him. So Habakkuk did that. He wrote down the, the words on tablets of stone. And these words, written in Hebrew, 2,500 years old, preserved from generation to generation, translated now to our language in English, and beautifully bound in a leather Bible, are God's words to us. Like, that's how the Bible works. That is awesome. That is awesome, right? God's word withstands any type of scrutiny, any type of language barrier, any geographical barrier. God's word stands 
And God's word has stood the test of time throughout generations. And we know God's word is not just an old book, but it's a timeless book. And so the generation actually after Habakkuk would have meditated on and taken comfort in the very words that we're reading today. As Babylon came in and invaded and took God's people captive, God's people would have prayed along with Habakkuk and processed the problem of evil and suffering with Habakkuk with the very words that he has, the very words that he wrote down here. And today, the people of God are able to read the words of Habakkuk and be encouraged and be uplifted. Right, so that's what God's instructing Habakkuk to do. That's what God instructed humans to do throughout history as they recorded the divine revelation of the Bible carried along by the Spirit of God. That's how we have our Bibles today. Isn't that interesting? That's how God has worked throughout history uh, to give us his very words. So he says, write it down. This vision, this revelation that I'm giving you These prayers, they're not just for you, Habakkuk. They're for people long after you. And we get to benefit from those words today. So God says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Then God says, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. What's God saying? He's saying that my plan will certainly come to pass. Now, remember that the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't necessarily written to us, right? And so when Habakkuk was writing this, he had the Babylonian invasion that we read about in chapter one on his mind, as you probably would as well, right? And so when God says, wait for the vision, it will surely come, it will not delay, this is referring immediately to the fact that, look, the Babylonians... They're, they're going to come and they're going to carry out judgment on my people. Right, that's what this looks forward to. But Habakkuk wrote for a time, not just for himself, but for future generations of, of God's people as well. And so for us, the Babylonian invasion, that happened. And you can read about that in, in the Bible itself. That happened. But this has wisdom for today as well. And so when God says, Wait, because the vision still awaits its appointed time. It will come, it will not delay. God's referring to this idea that, look, there will be an end to what we know as life. In other words, the tapestry, to borrow from the loom illustration, all of my plans and all of my work, God says, will come to its beautiful completion at the end of time. God says, my vision to reconcile and restore all things to myself, to make right all that is wrong in the world, to eradicate the world of all evil, brokenness, suffering, violence, and oppression, that will come to its glorious end. Wait for it. It will not delay. That's the hope of the Christian, by the way. That God not only came once in the God-man Jesus Christ, but in fact is coming again to establish forever in permanence his kingdom. And how many of you know that that kingdom is going to be very, very good? The suffering will be no more. The brokenness will be restored. The pain will be eradicated. 
That's what we look forward to. That's our hope as believers. So God encourages us, uh, encourages us, I can't say that today. God encourages Habakkuk and he encourages you with these words today. Wait for it. Whether it's in our lifetime or future generations, God's will will come to pass. God's vision awaits its appointed time. That's our encouragement. We move to verses four and five where God does answer the question for us, how are we to live while we wait for all of this to happen? How are we to live today as we wait for God to eradicate and do, do away with all the evil and suffering in the world eventually? How do we wait while the tapestry is still in progress? Chapter two, verse four, God says this, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. That's just another word for death. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Here's what God is saying. While you wait, there are two ways you can live. You can live full of yourself, proud, or you can live full of faith, righteous. You can live full of yourself, rooted in pride and arrogance, reliance on yourself. Or you can live by faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. Reliance on God, that God is going to do what he says he will do. And throughout these two verses, God uh, brings in, into view these two different ways we can live and compares and contrasts them and so look with me again in verses four and five. I'll point out just a couple of comparisons here. And then, and then what we're gonna do as well is we're going to not just think about and list all the prideful people that we know. I'm sure the list is pretty long, right? But actually instead invite God to show us areas where our hearts are prideful. Because even for people that have been walking with the Lord for a long time, there are areas of deep-rooted pride and self-reliance deep in our hearts. Right, I just want to make sure we're not reading the Bible as a magnifying glass to look at other people's problems, but instead reading it as a mirror for God to highlight our problems and deal with our hearts, right? And so we're going to look here at the difference between the way of the proud and the way of the faith-filled righteous person. In verse 4, God says, behold, his soul, the prideful man's soul, is puffed up what God is saying here is the, pro proudful, uh, the prideful person trusts only in himself and he's so full of himself that there is no room for anything else. The proud person trusts in himself. But the righteous live by his faith. The righteous person trusts in the character and goodness of God. Verse five, moreover, wine or Wealth is a traitor. It's an arrogant man who is never at rest. There is no rest for the proud person. But for the righteous person living by faith, there is great rest and serenity in who God is. It says the proud person's greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. One thing you never hear the grave say is enough. Enough. 
right? Look, God's, God's people are not called to continually strive and work and try and do everything on their own. Instead, God's people are to be satisfied and rest and walk in relationship with God. That's the difference between the way of the proud and the way of the righteous person. There are two ways to live. Full of yourself, pride, full of faith, the righteous, the one who is right before God. Two ways to live. So I want to ask you, as God is working all things for his glory and our good, how are you going to live while you wait for his plan to come to fulfillment? I'm going to share with you a hard truth, but it's a biblical truth. The end of pride is death. If we say the righteous live by faith, the prideful die by pride. There is no life eternally for the one that relies on himself. Pride always destroys the person in whom it's rooted and the people around whom it's rooted. The end of pride is death, not life. And I want to close, take a, take a few minutes to jump over actually to the New Testament, the New Covenant, after Jesus came. Because how many of you know the Old Testament where Habakkuk is situated actually points forward and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ? If the Old Testament points to Jesus... The New Testament reflects on the person, work, and life of Jesus. And Habakkuk 2, verse 4, is quoted three times directly in the New Testament. That means the New Testament writers, uh, about 600 or so years after Habakkuk lived, were reading the same book that we're reading, really latched on to chapter 2, verse 4 of Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by his faith, and it informed how they live. And so they put it in their writings as they're writing about Jesus. And, and what the New Testament authors do is they take Habakkuk 2.4 and say, for the Christian, for the person following the God-man Jesus Christ, here's what it means to live by faith as a righteous person. And so we're going to be in three, three books of the New Testament as we close. And, and, and I want to show you what it means to really live by faith while we wait for God's plan to be fulfilled as Christians. I want to challenge you to think about these things. The first passage we're going to be in is Paul's, letters to the, Paul's letter to the Romans. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. He quotes Habakkuk. He says this, For I am not ashamed of the good news of Jesus, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, here's our verse, the righteous shall live by faith. Here's what Paul's saying. God is a holy, set-apart, righteous, sinless, good, and great God. Our sin separates 
sinful people from a good and great God. It is walking by faith in Jesus Christ that restores us to right relationship with a great and good God. That's the point of Romans 1. Living by faith in Jesus brings us into relationship with God. We move next to Galatians. I told you we're going to be all over in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Again, this is the apostle or disciple of Jesus, Paul, and he's writing to a small church in the province of Galatia. And he writes this in chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For, here's our verse, the righteous shall live by his faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing on Abraham of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That's a lot. Here's what Paul is saying. Living by faith in Jesus Christ saves us from working for something we can never earn. Pride is exhausting. Living by faith in yourself is exhausting. Why? Because you're trying to earn a gift that you cannot earn by definition. Here's the good news about Jesus. Jesus lived the life you could not live. Jesus worked under the law in your place because your works to God are like rags. They're nothing compared to what God demands for his people. That's what sin does. It corrupts. Not only did Jesus live righteously and perfectly in your place under the law, but he died That's what Paul says when he says, cursed was Jesus when he hung on a tree. Jesus died the death that sinners deserve to die. And not only that, but he rose again to defeat death forever. So when we place our faith in Jesus, when we walk with Jesus through pain and through suffering, it saves us from having to work for a gift we cannot earn, salvation. It saves us from works. And finally, in the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 35 through 39. It's the third quote of Habakkuk 2.4. Here's what the author to Hebrews says. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Here's our verse. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul, God says, has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Here's what the author to Hebrews is saying. Here's how he understood Habakkuk 2 verse 4. When we walk with Jesus in a trusting relationship, in a faith relationship with Jesus... Our soul is preserved from death. This is the idea of eternal life. The righteous shall live 
Emphasis on live. The righteous shall live by his faith. Again, this isn't a popular truth, but it's a biblical truth. And I'm not here to write the mail. I'm just here to deliver God's word to you. The end of pride is death. The end of the faith-filled, righteous person is life spent in relationship with the good and great God. So as we wait for God's work, God's plan, and God's will to come to its ultimate conclusion, if you will, there will come a day where the tapestry of God's plan is completed. Jesus will return. How's he going to find you when he returns? Will you be so puffed up with your own self-reliance and works and pride that there's no room for Jesus? Or will you empty yourself out before a good and great God? Fill yourself up with faith that doesn't look in but looks out and says, I need a Savior. I need a God. And friends, as Habakkuk teaches us, this God is not like any other God of any other religion. This is the God Yahweh. This is our Lord. He is the strength of his people. He's the salvation of his people. He's the firm hope and rock of his people. And I know we're still living beneath the loom. I know there's still a lot of pain and suffering. Habakkuk knows it too because it's not going to be until the last week of this four-week series that he can finally utter a praise to God. But hear me in this. God desires a relationship with his people. Would you place your faith in Jesus as you wait for God to work out his ultimate plan to make all things right again that have been corrupted by sin. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning.